This is The Big Interview. I'm Sonal Rupani alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. This is a podcast that delves deep into a myriad of real-life remarkable stories. We do love a good yarn, but beyond that, we explore how individuals find their purpose, how people react to the unexpected, and what happens when they're pushed to the brink. I know you're going to say I say this all the time, Rob. One of my favourite interviews <laughs> is coming up. I'll have to get an official top three from you. The, the story of Mike Durant, and I will paint the scene for you in a, in a few moments' time, but I have been diligently and tirelessly working on it all afternoon because he's one of those guys, he doesn't waste a word. He's not like you or I. Right. He doesn't waste a word, Rob. He's a very interesting guy, and he's got a very powerful and remarkable story to tell. Black Hawk Down. I think it was 2001 that it was released. When you look at the cast, and producer Tom and I did that today, Josh Hartnett is in it. Eric Bana, the Australian who did, I think, have a spell as the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, he did. Uh, Orlando Bloom is in it. You've also uh, Tom Sizemore as well. He did play Chopper. Yeah, Chopper Reed. Right. He did play Chopper Reed, did Eric Bana. Ewan McGregor is in this film, and it is a, based on a true life story. It was directed, incidentally, by Ridley Scott. Now, for the focus of this interview, we're in conversation with Mike Durant. Now, he, in a lot of ways, is the central figure to this particular story. Now, who is Mike? Well, he is a decorated former American helicopter pilot turned author. He actually spent 22 years in the military between 1979 and 2001, when you look at the awards that he received, and this story in part explains why he received the likes of the Distinguished Service Medal, the Distinguished Flying Cross, the Bronze Star, the Valor Device, the Purple Heart. This is a decorated former American military man. He was a member of the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment as a Chief Warrant Officer 3. Now, we go all the way back to a specific day, October the 3rd, 1993, and Operation Gothic Serpent. Quite a name for a mission, mm. that Gothic Serpent. And it was the operation that saw Mike make headlines worldwide. That operation was part of the broader Somali Civil War. Now, that had intensified since 1991 and threatened famine. Now, when doing my research on this story today, in actual fact, over a five-month period in, in 1992, it was estimated by the UN that over 100,000 Somalis actually lost their life through, the fa- uh, through famine. Now, the UN had become engaged uh, to provide food aid, but eventually shifted their mission, uh, mission to establish democracy and restore a secure a government to the African nation. Now, it saw the United States, supported, as I say, by the UN, engage in a battle with Somali militiamen loyal to the the Soviet-trained warlord Mohammed Farah Adid. Now then, on that specific day, October the 3rd, 1993, Mike and his team were meant to take part in a 90-minute routine mission. It was Mike and his comrades. That mission, though, became a 15-hour battle. It would be known to this day as the Battle of Mogadishu. And, well, two Black Hawk Down helicopters were actually shot down. That left the stranded soldiers surrounded one of which was Mike Durant. There was an awful lot of individuals who lost their life with the ensuing battle that followed this. But let's start at the very beginning. That sets the scene. Mike Durant is critical to this. Let's get to it then. Here, Mike Durant, who joined me in a conversation ooh, a week or so ago, he sets the scene, this very much the calm before the storm. Yeah, so it is interesting as time goes by, there are certain parts that are crystal clear. There are other parts that are a bit fuzzy. 
um, it was a Sunday and we had been in country for, uh, I guess, uh, probably six weeks, five weeks and had done a number of missions and we were planning a training mission for the following day. And I was the flight lead of, of our element. So uh, whenever something started to develop, I'd get called right away and I'd have to go in and, and we'd have to take a look at, you know, what the specifics were of this particular mission. And uh, I think the first thing I remember is just sitting outside the Joint Operations Center planning the training mission for the following day and getting uh, the first notification that a mission was developing and, and sort of, you know, change of mindset from planning a training mission to, you know, within minutes we're going to go launch into a, a combat operation. So that is the voice of Mike Durant. You've heard there, it was a routine day. He's planning a training mission for the next day. He then gets the call from his superiors that he needs to get on board, get on board his helicopter and fly into the heart of Mogadishu. He has said it is a routine mission. It is a mission that should have, from start to finish, taken no more than 90 minutes. It soon, however, began, well, a, a kind of a start of a life and death situation. So I've always said, and, and you're right, most of the missions were less than an hour. I think on average, it was probably about 40 minutes from the time we put the first uh, customers on the target to, you know, last last man off uh, was usually in that general amount of time. It depended on the size of the target. There were some targets that were fairly large, and if they had to clear the whole facility uh, or multiple buildings, it, it might take longer than that. But this one was a single building. It was not a very large building. And the expectation was it would probably be on the short side. The turning point was when Super 6-1 got shot down. There's no question about it. I mean, there were some things that happened on this mission that hadn't happened before. We had a Ranger fall from an aircraft. We had uh, a couple of small contingencies occur. But the real turning point was losing that first bird. And, uh, you know, at that point, the customers had been on the target for probably 40 minutes and we were getting ready to start the extraction. And uh, 6-1, which was uh, flown by my very good friends Cliff Walcott and Donovan Briley, was hit in the tail by a rocket propelled grenade and crashed in the city. And once that happened, it, it just it changed the dynamic of everything. Because now the commander had to deal with uh, you know, recovering a crew, survivors, separated from the main body of the force. He already had a ground convoy in contact. He already had troops on the target in contact and really didn't have sufficient assets to deal with even one of those situations. And now he had three. So uh, that, that absolutely, I think uh, to a man, I believe most people would say that that was the turning point. That was the turning point. October the 3rd, 1993, 1993, a routine mission that now sees two Black Hawk helicopters crashed in the centre of Mogadishu. You've got militiamen surrounding both. You've got an injured uh, uh, military personnel who fought, uh, actually fell out of one of the helicopters as well. So very quickly, this has gone from the, dare I say, mundane to life and death. We are in conversation with Mike Durant. This is the story of Black Hawk Down. It was, of course, a blockbuster movie that came out in 2001, directed by Ridley Scott. And this is the real-life story of what happened to Mike. We've sort of set the scene. We've, just, we've heard Mike describe how one helicopter was shot down 
Mike's, I think, was next in the firing line, Chris. He certainly was, yes. This story takes, well, so many different turns. If you are aware of the Black Hawk Down film, you will know the story. This told, though, by a man at the heart of it, Mike Durant. Now, one helicopter already shot down by Somalia militiamen. That was Helicopter Super 6-1. That actually killed both the pilot and the co-pilot, two very dear friends to Mike. And it was actually his helicopter that was now in the firing line because it was actually hit on the tail by an RPG seven. It crashed about a mile southwest of the operations target. Now I'd asked Mike to do something. He got quite emotional at this because I wanted him to take us, the, the listeners, back to that moment where the RPG hits the tail of his helicopter. Remember, he's in the heart of Mogadishu. It hits that. He spirals to the ground. Talk us through it. It's it's, it's very difficult to explain. Um, you know, I've tried to describe it in terms that people would understand you know imagine you're going down the interstate 120 miles an hour or more and all of a sudden uh, the steering wheel comes off and your your front wheels leave the leave the vehicle and you're spinning out of control and you crash into a concrete barrier i mean that's essentially it right it just it just happened in the vertical instead of the horizontal and i don't remember hitting the ground but I think that's possibly because my mind just refuses to acknowledge it. But I mean, I remember every second right up until we hit the ground and it was, uh, it was a combination of applying all the things that we had been trained to do to try to save the aircraft and, you know, thinking about your own well-being. I, I would say as a result of the training, the focus was really primarily on controlling the aircraft but I think there's some part of you that's thinking, you know, this is it. This this is not survivable. And uh, somehow, miraculously, it was. And I think that the part that made me think I had died was that, you know, obviously knocked unconscious for several minutes. And if you die or you don't die, your brain doesn't know the difference. You know, it's uh, it, that sequence came to an end and, and my good fortune happened to be that, that I did survive or very likely that I might not have. I don't even know how it's possible to survive something like that. Something like that. I think it's it's just your day. You know, I, I think it's a bit maybe blasé for me to say that, but for something like that, absolutely, Rob. You, you, you crash land. You're the pilot of a helicopter. Somehow, though, Mike did survive. He had a broken back. He had, and I appreciate this is quite visual, he had a broken left leg, his femur had snapped in two. He was in excruciating pain, as we will get to. But here, and I think this is a real fascinating listen, because Mike here provides some insight into his mindset at that specific moment. You have crash-landed, obviously he's in excruciating pain, but what is the overriding emotion when he realises very quickly that he is in the centre of Mogadishu? In a matter of moments, he will be surrounded by individuals that want to take his life. Where is his head at at that point? No, I wouldn't say panic. You know, the word actually that comes to mind is frustration because I just felt frustrated at the lack of options that I had. You know, I couldn't move. I was completely immobilised. I did have my weapon, but, uh, you know, I... There was no way to communicate quickly with anyone. Uh, the only person within speaking distance was Ray Frank, my co-pilot, and and you know he was injured pretty badly as well. And I and I just remember this feeling of frustration because I just couldn't figure out. Uh, I think it's my nature to be a problem solver, and, and I just couldn't figure out how to solve this complex set of problems. And it was it was it was 
just absolutely that. It was frustrating. Spoken, I guess, like a true military man. Well, there. yeah, it's amazing how your brain is conditioned to 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 analyse rather than to yeah. to succumb to what I think normal people would would just would just be overwhelmed with just an emotional yes. overload. Fear, panic, pain, not for someone like Mike, who I guess is a consummate professional in that regard. It was frustration. He was annoyed at himself that he had landed in that situation. I want to get straight back to this, though, because Mike picks up the story of how this perilous situation evolved from there. And it's worth just reminding, reiterating, he has suffered a crushed vertebra in his back and he's got a compound fracture of his left femur. So time is, is very difficult to uh, measure in a situation like this. So it's hard for me to say if it was one minute or 10 minutes, but the next thing to happen is actually Randy Sugart and Gary Gordon, uh, two Delta Force uh, operators, arrive at the side of the aircraft. They're, they basically walk right up to my door. We, we were flying with the doors off, but you know the opening where my door would have been. And I knew them and I... So my immediate reaction was, wow, problem solved. You know, we have a rescue force is, is here. And they, they got me out of the aircraft. They put me on the ground. And, and then we, we started to defend the crash site. And uh, I would say after that point, which it probably took them at least five minutes to get in there, it, it was probably more close to a slow burn, as you describe it, versus, a, you know, immediate overrun. They, the Somalis were initially coming in in small numbers, one, two here and there, disorganized. And then I, I speculate that the word got out that we were lightly defended and uh, a bulk of the militia combined with civilians gathered and made a coordinated assault from the, uh, as I was sitting on the left-hand side of the aircraft. And at that point it was over. So as you heard there, it was actually two Delta Force snipers by the name of Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar who had been providing suppressive fire from the air at hostile Somalis who were converging on the crash site. How did the sight of those two men, though, change Mike's assessment of the situation? So optimism initially, because I, I didn't realise there were only two of them, and I was just amazed at how quickly they arrived. But then as... A few more moments passed, and I realized, okay, I see two guys, that this is it. And then when it became desperate again was when uh, Gary was hit, and he went down. And I heard him. He was on the other side of the aircraft. I heard him make a, you know, damn, I'm hit sort of comment. And <clears throat> as it turns out, uh Based on what I know of his injuries, he, he was he had he had body armor on, but it, the, one of the rounds found a gap in the body armor. And uh, at that point, Randy came back around, and he was running out of ammunition. So this is when the realization came that oh, this is this is not good news. We're we're about to be overrun, and. Uh, Again, there are not a lot of options here. So, I, again, it's sort of back to frustration. I remember thinking distinctly, that, you know, there were thousands of U.S. troops on the ground in Mogadishu, probably all within five miles of us. But it was simply a matter of competing priorities and, you know, not being able to get people uh, spun up and involved quickly enough 
to get to us because it all it all transpired very quickly. Yeah, transport yourself there then. So Gary Gordon, who volunteered, he was uh, he was dropped in. He's uh, been hit fatally. He has uh, passed on. It's now just Mike. And he's got Randy. Randy's alongside him. His ammunition is getting lower and lower, however. And you've got Somalia militiamen, tens into the hundreds, now rushing to the crash site to essentially take these guys, to take these guys down. Mike picks up the story. So our crew chiefs had weapons. They were in the aircraft and, and Randy asked me where they were and I, I knew where they were. So I, I told him. He went in, he got those. Then he gave me a replacement weapon for mine. And I believe to this day that it was actually Gary's weapon that he gave me. And uh, it had a partial magazine left. And so I'm running out of ammunition. He's running out out of ammunition, but he's got two freshly loaded weapons. He makes a radio call on his handheld radio. And I hear a response back from one of the other pilots saying that a reaction force is en route. So here we go back to optimism again, right? If we can hold out for a few more minutes, uh, we, can, we can maybe get through. Randy goes around the nose in it, and it's uh, maybe a phrase that's it's not well known outside the U.S., but it's the Alamo. I mean, it's it's a it's a huge firefight. He's vastly outnumbered, and in in minutes, he, uh, Randy goes down as well. And at that point, I realized for the second time that day that in my mind, my life was about to end because it, the Somalis didn't have a reputation for being merciful and. I assumed that I would suffer the same fate as many others who had been overrun in similar situations. And uh, I just remember looking up at the sky, knowing there's nothing I could do. I couldn't hide. I couldn't run. I I ran out of ammunition in this second weapon and uh, sort of accepted my fate. And then uh, I was fortunate in that someone in the crowd realized I had value as a prisoner instead of another dead American, and uh, they managed to get control of the situation and they, they captured me. Mike looked to be certain death. Someone in the crowd emerged, someone of higher authority to say, hey, wait a minute, this guy is more valuable to us as a live hostage than he is, as he said there, another dead American. Now, I wanted to pick up on both Gary and Randy because those two men, it's important that we stick with these two guys. They volunteered, for goodness sake, to be dropped in. They knew from their vantage point up there what they were letting themselves in for. It was, in effect, a suicide mission, and it's a fact that isn't lost on Mike. You know, I would say, first of all, I was not aware of how they got to the point where they were standing beside my aircraft until after the fact. As I understand it, you know, they did volunteer. They were initially told they were not going to be allowed in and then argued the point that if they didn't take action, that we would all be lost. And finally were granted permission to go in and dropped off by another Blackhawk, which subsequently was shot down as well. And, uh, you know, I, I've often wondered whether or not I could have done what they did. You know, I think most people would make the first request, but after being told no, people make that second request. How many people insist that they be allowed in, you know, what most from the outside looking in would say is in fact that a suicide mission and, and they're special people. I mean, you know, they were, awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. It was the first time in over 20 years that award had been uh, earned. And 
They absolutely deserve it. I mean, absolutely. And and I, I and I get the point that a lot of people make that, you know, that's that's your job. I mean, you could argue that's you know that's what what me and my crew did. We went in to help others, but uh, that particular case to me is at another level, and they absolutely deserve that recognition. And and I'm not sure most people can say without hesitation that they would have done the same. We're up to the point in this story where he is now taken hostage by Somalian militiamen. That kickstarts a whole new chain of events. With Mike now a hostage, well, I'll let him pick up the story. So it's interesting, after that first stop, what I didn't know, again, until after Mark wrote Black Hawk Down, is that apparently I was being held initially by uh, a clan, not the primary clan, that we were targeting uh, on our missions. The primary clan we were tar- targeting on our missions was the Haber Getter clan, and Muhammad Farah Adid was the leader of that. He's the one we're trying to capture. So he found out that I was being held by a rival clan, and as the story goes, he paid to get me into his custody. So I moved within maybe an hour of being in that first location. And I, you know, they threw me on the back of a truck and brought me to a second location. And that's where I spent the next, I think, probably 24 hours or so. And that's where the doctor visited me. I, I spent the night there. Uh, and uh, he came the, the, the next day. Unfortunately, he, he had really no equipment or, or supplies because he was dealing with the hundreds of wounded and, and casualties that they had on, on the Somali side. You know, to put this in perspective, I've heard numbers as high as 2,000 wounded and, and 700 killed on the Somali side. And this is this was a big, big fight. So he's got, I call it his tackle box. He had a, a box with some betadine solution and gauze, and he's trying to deal with this compound femur fracture, broken back, you know, dirty wounds all over the place. Uh, but he, he was able to clean me up a little bit, and whether it was his actions or some of the other things that we had been doing as a preventative measure, I never did get an infection in that femur, which is somewhat miraculous. Um, so after he, he visited or the same day that he visited, they asked me if I'd make a video. And, you know, this is the biggest challenge that someone in captivity faces is, is being exploited. And that's what video does is, is video exploitation. And, and you really have to be careful how you handle it. And, and for me, fortunately, I'd been trained and, and could recall most of what they taught us to do. And I didn't want to do the video, but there's nothing you can do. I mean, you can't move. They're going to bring a camera in a video. You you can either sit there and do nothing or, or try to sway things in your favor. So they asked me, there was four primary questions. The one was basically my name. And then uh, I said I was a Blackhawk pilot. And you, know, you have to remember that that's pretty meaningless because I was captured laying next to the cockpit of a Blackhawk. So to say I'm a Blackhawk pilot is probably not a big deal. Um, you know, and that's what they teach you. They teach you things that you can say and you can't say. And then they asked me a couple of political questions were the tricky ones. One was uh, how you think this mission in Somalia. And I said, I'm a soldier. I do what I'm told. And then they said, you killed the people innocent. And I said, innocent people being killed is not good. And the survival school gave me very high marks for those answers. They're as meaningless as you could get. And uh, it got me through the moment. And it actually became what we call proof of life, meaning now there's video evidence that I'm alive, I'm a prisoner, and there's, there's a whole new set of rules that apply in that situation. 
So in the end, the video actually helps me, not the Somalis, but you know that's certainly not how they envisioned it. And then right after the video, they moved me again and, and things settled down for a day or two. Now, I should point out at this juncture that Mike actually spent 11 days in captivity. He actually forged uh, actually very good relationships with a number of his captors, one of those being a gentleman by the name of Frumbu, who actually sent Mike, after his release, a letter asking how he was, how the injuries were. He, uh, Mike said that he Frumbi wrote, was Somalian. Fr- Frumbi was a Somalian. Wow. And the Red Cross, who were involved in this, they actually, from the accounts Stockholm Syndrome in a lot of ways, whereby it was the actual captors that took a real shine to Mike. Of course, Stockholm Syndrome, normally the other way around, yeah. they took a real shine to him. And they actually, as I say, Frumby, the man that was, uh, I guess, who Mike said he was really friendly to him. He tended to his wounds. He actually sent Mike a letter after all this was done and dusted. As for the man that Mike has to thank for his life today, it's a gentleman by the name of Robert Oakley. Now, he was a former ambassador to Somalia, and he played a decisive role in securing Mike's release after those 11 days, as the man himself explains now. So Robert Oakley was the former ambassador to Somalia, and he was, uh, they actually called him a straight shooter. And I, I've said ever since I met Ambassador Oakley that if we had a thousand Robert Oakleys in this world, sprinkled all over the world, we have far fewer problems because he was just a tremendous statesman. The, the Somalis trusted him. He had great rapport with them. And as soon as he came back on the scene, everything settled down. Everybody realized, you know, there's a path forward here. You know, let's let's just sit down at the table and drink tea and we'll work this out. And that's what he did. And he basically, because he was a straight shooter, and he told me this personally, he said, I, I gave them two options. I said, you know, you either let him go unconditionally, him being me, or you do not. And if you do not, then sooner or later, our intelligent assets will figure out where he is and we're going to launch a rescue. And when we do... We're coming with everything we got. And at that point, we had brought in a carrier battle group again. We brought in more aircraft. You know, there were more, many, many, many more resources on the airfield than when we were conducting our operations. So he had some military uh, horsepower to back up his, you could call it a threat. Uh, and the Somalis, again, because he was a straight shooter and did what he said he was going to do, they they felt their best option was to let me go, and they did. And uh, I... I I truly believe that I, I, it would not have gone the way it did without Ambassador Oakley being involved. Now, lying on his hospital bed, Robert Oakley, who you've heard there, he's spoken very eloquently, has Mike about Robert's role in all of this. He did actually secure Mike's release unconditionally. Now, as he was lying on a hospital bed with his injuries being tended to, he received a call from then US President Bill Clinton. Now, Bill was there. He praised Mike's courage, his bravery. Clinton himself has said, and he has told, uh, he has said before that this whole incident, the Battle of Mogadishu, etc., is one of the darkest hours of his presidency. But as for that conversation, as you're about to hear now, it was a conversation that Mike, well, let's just put it frankly, he far from cherishes. Yeah, I mean, I, it was very brief, first of all. And, and I would say he was ticking boxes. I mean, it, you know, he, he, there were many who blame him and his administration, and rightfully so. There was some missteps for sure. And, uh, you know, he's doing damage control. I was heavily medicated at the time. You know, I'm sure I just said something very benign, like, you know, I'm just proud to serve this great country. Not that I don't feel that, but 
you know, that that's probably what I said. Um, and then, you know, he, he, he invited me to, to come to the white house. And that's the one thing that I, I felt I couldn't do because, you know, as the, as the layers of the onion start to get peeled back and you realize what were the underlying root cause of some of what went on there, there's absolute blame, uh, for him and his administration. And I just couldn't see myself with a photo op, you know, when, when I know so many people pay with their lives and their families are suffering and I just decided it wasn't the right thing to do. It's sort of the age old truth of war when you've got people in offices making decisions Mm -hmm. that, that affect the lives and the, the lives of people on the front line. How can you answer a phone call? How can you relate to that person when it's just, yeah, it's, you know, as he said, it was just ticking a box. Ticking a box. It's another. It's a PR exercise. It's a PR exercise. It's to a save face because what on earth were they doing there in the first yeah. place? Well, that's a question for another day, Rob. And, and I want to get to what Mike uh, talked about here in terms of how what he endured and he went through. How did how did it change his outlook on life going through that harrowing episode over the course of 12, 13 days? I think when you and you could, if you want to say it this way, when you cheat death, which I did probably twice. Uh, there's this, you, you, you leave behind this fear of failure. I think that's the biggest impact it's had on me. It's, it's, it's almost like anything is possible. It's not like I was some wallflower before all this happened. I mean, I was in a special operations unit, flight lead and combat. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I was sort of this person before, but it, it took it to another level. It, it basically made me believe that really the only limits on, on what I do and, and who I become are, are in my own mind. And it gave me a lot more confidence to, to do things that I, otherwise I would not have done for sure. But I will say this, there were some absolute lows. I mean, it, it broke me when I found out that Cliff and Donovan were dead. I didn't know they were dead. And when I was in the hospital, of course, I, you know, I'm on, on morphine and other pain-killing drugs and probably not myself when uh, when the rest of the flight crews came in and, and Cliff and Donovan were not there and I asked where they were, you know, it, it, there had already been enough loss. And, and then when I found out that they were gone too, it just, it, that's probably one of, if not the lowest points of the whole experience. And I should point out as well, Mike, and I had a long, long, long time with him after all of these questions, so much that didn't make this particular interview. He did talk about suffering from PTSD. He said that he went through a spell where he would break down and cry uncontrollably for a period of time. He has rebuilt his life. He has made a full recovery from the physical injuries that he suffered. And he said two things that I think will resonate with anyone who, have ha- who has had lows in their lives. Time is a great healer yeah. and talking about it. Get things off your chest find someone that you can trust and open up to he did all of that and he said he is now on an even keel he is still a military man he is still working in that area in that field but as you've heard i think through that you know some great regrets as to what transpired on that day from october the 3rd 1993 we finish as it's only i guess right to do so a lot of you will know this story be aware of this story through the movie black hawk down directed of course by ridley scott i had to ask was it an accurate portrayal of actually what went on? It's accurate enough. And what I mean by that is if uh, if you're 
someone who's just interested in, in the, the generalities of what happened, it tells a good story. It, and, and there's nothing in there I can point to of significance that, you know, that's just plain, absolutely wrong. It's the little things, um, you know, something that's portrayed in the movie might've been done by someone else, or this person was sitting in the right seat instead of the left seat of the aircraft. Those, you know, little trivial details that, uh, you know, as a, as a pilot, you pay attention to, but the average person wouldn't know the difference. So uh, I, uh, I'll i go back to my short answer, which is it's accurate enough. It does come across as a very gritty, realistic movie, I yeah, must say. If you haven't seen it, it is well worth a watch. Now that you know the story of Mike Duran, as told in his own words, if you haven't seen the movie, you've got to go back to 2001 when it was made. It is an incredible movie. Ridley Scott has done an incredible job with it. Thanks for listening, and if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and give us a review. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.